0: I never do this, but I was going to tell a joke first. <laughs> hey, you're here. Um, I'll probably ruin this. I'm not good at telling jokes, but Richard Chassie, and I don't know if he's here. To, he he showed, Richard showed me this joke on YouTube a while back. It was it was hilarious. Um, there was this preacher. He was preaching, and he said. Uh, he he was preaching, and he was Southern Baptist. I guess maybe not Baptist. I shouldn't say that, but Southern sounding preacher. And he said, he said, uh, he was preaching. And he goes, he goes, what shall we do with sin? And uh, there was a little boy in the in the audience, and he didn't know what a, what a rhetorical question was. And so the little boy looked around the church, and nobody was answering the preacher. Of course, the preacher, rhetorical being, he didn't expect to get an answer. He's just trying to make a point that we've got to deal with sin and take care of sin in our lives or whatever. So he says it again. He goes, what shall we do with sin? And the little boy looked around. Nobody answered the preacher. And he said, if he, if he asks that question again, I'm going to say something. <laughs> and so later in his message, the preacher says, what shall we do with sin? Preacher, the little boy stood up. He goes, We don't know. You don't know? We don't know. We don't know. You know, stop asking the question. We don't, we obviously don't know. And his parents on the front row were mortified. Like, oh my God. I love that joke because it, it really speaks to a problem in the church. We don't know what to do about sin. There is a real misunderstanding in the, in the, uh, in the theology of the church about, you know, what, what did God do with sin, and what do we do with sin, and what, you know, I believe, saints, I believe with all my heart there are three things that the church worldwide has got to get if The power of the new covenant and the understanding of what Jesus accomplished for us really is experienced and bears the fruit that it was meant to bear. And these are the three things. The first first thing is that we've got to see, number one, and the thing I like about these three things is that there either are, there's no middle ground here. You either believe it, You see it in the scripture and you believe it or you don't. Number one, we must see that sin has been taken away by what Jesus did and not just covered. We must see as as a church worldwide that sin has been taken away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews talks about this. In chapter 10, about how under the old covenant, there was a covering of sin year by year, day by day, with the blood of bulls and goats, but could never take away sin. But the scripture says, thou hast prepared a body for me that I might offer that body that sin might be taken away once for all time, for all people, for all sin. He offered himself up. The taking away of sin is huge. It answers the issue of the the, uh, 1 John 1, 9 Controversy about whether or not we have to confess our sins on a daily basis to stay forgiveness or stay uh, cleansed or forgiven. Um, if you read, if, it's, it's terrible that we have been stuck on that, that teaching for years. And even to this day, churches teach that a believer needs to confess his sins every day in order to stay right with God or stay cleansed or stay forgiven. Totally misapplying that verse. 1 John 1, 9, if you read it in context, verse 8 above it, verse 10 below it, John is describing someone, he says, someone who says he has no sin, he has not sinned, he has called God a liar, and he's deceived. He's describing an unregenerated person who says, I don't need a Savior. He's referring to, he was really addressing the Gnostics who said they don't need a Savior. And he's saying, look, if, if a person says he has no sin or he has not sinned, he's deceived, the truth is not in him, that's another thing, the truth is not in him, he says, the truth is not in him, and he's the word is not in him, and he's calling God a liar. That's the whole thing. I mean, look at that description. He, he denies that he's a sinner, the truth is not in him, the word is not in him, he's deceived, and he's calling God a liar. That's a description, saints, of an unregenerated person. That's a description of you and me before we got born again. Right. Exactly. And so in the middle of that context is this simple statement that says, but if you'll confess, if you'll agree with God that you're a sinner, God is faithful and just because he's already accomplished the work to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How, much, how many times has God done something all once. All. And like, I love what Clark says, you know, in the original Greek, the word all means all. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's awesome. It's just a simple salvation verse that we have turned into this huge edifice that, you know, I mean, it's the only verse. I mean, you read, I read articles about this confession of sin stuff, and they cite First John 1, 9, like 50 times. Because there's no other verse. I mean, and, and the very people that teach The scriptures say all the time, you should never base your doctrine on one verse. Well, so it's just huge. We've got to get past this and see that sin is no longer imputed to the believer. That's why you don't have to ask forgiveness again and again and again or get cleansed again and again and again because it's not even imputed to us because if you're not under law, there's no transgression, the whole thing. Okay, that's a whole message right there, but okay, number two. Number two, the second thing we've got to get as a church is... We've got to see that the the believer does not have sin in their heart. There is no sin in the believer's heart. Sin is not in the heart of the believer. The believer has a new heart. We are a new creation. We've been created new in Christ Jesus. God has literally done a mysterious, awesome thing that we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. I want to talk about is he... He actually cut away the body of our flesh. He spiritually circumcised us so that he could separate us from our sin. He quarantined the power of sin in our our mortal body, in our members, the apostles teach us. But he raised the inner man from the dead. God raises the dead and calls into being that which did not exist before, a new creation, a new person. Not just the spirit we have teaching out there that says, well, the spirit is saved, the soul is being saved, and the body will be saved. No. Paul didn't say that. He didn't say, you know, your spirit's in the heavens, but your soul is on earth. Or, you know, your, your spirit is new, but you've still got problems with your soul. No. He talked about the person, the invisible person who is both soul and spirit. Soul and spirit are, are uh, distinguishable, but they're inseparable. They're distinguishable, but inseparable. It's the person. I'm a new person. Jesus said he who is born of the flesh is flesh, but he who is born of the spirit is spirit. He didn't have this complex thing. Can you imagine teaching this in the world to the uneducated masses that, well, actually, your spirit is saved, but your soul is not. You know, come to our classes and learn how you can, uh. no. It's simple, but profound. It's like a new person. I'm a new person, a new creation. You know, it's awesome, it's it's, God has done something so awesome, but, but I believe, saints, we cannot really comprehend, I couldn't really grasp the new creation until I saw spiritual circumcision, because we still sin as believers, and so what are you going to do with that, you know, what are we going to do with sin, what are we going to do with this, so it's really important that we see spiritual circumcision, because spiritual circumcision is what opens our eyes to the new creation. Both, they go hand in hand. It's awesome. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this issue number two today. But there's a, there's a third issue. Number three is this. we got to get this too in the church worldwide, I believe. We've got to see that you do not look at sin in order to be changed. You don't focus on looking at sin in the flesh in order to be changed. The Scripture doesn't teach that. The Scripture says there's no good thing in our flesh You don't look at sin. You don't look at the flesh. You look at Jesus. We focus on Jesus. We we focus on him and him alone. And in him, we find our true identity. We have been created in his likeness. That's why Paul says when you look at Jesus, Paul says an amazing thing in the Corinthian letter. He says when you look at Jesus, it's like looking at a mirror. What does that mean? It means when you and I look at Jesus, you're looking at yourself. That is awesome. Because why? Because we've been made a new creation in his image. We are exactly like him. I'm not talking about physical features. I'm talking about we are new like him from, the, from this last Adam, from the Lord who is from above. We are new, a new creation. So, we, so now, as opposed to preachers telling you to look in your heart for sin so you can deal with your sin, how opposite is this? No, look at Jesus because when you see him, you'll see what you look like for you have been made new in him. That's heaven's dynamic. Heaven's dynamic is not like man's dynamic. Man is all about sin. Man is into sin management and Jesus, you know, and it is a big business. It's a big, huge business. Sin management is huge. And Jesus put them out of business. He came to take away the sin of the world. If you take away the, the one thing they manage, the capital they manage, they're out of business. Religion is out of business when sin is when you see that sin has been taken away. And you, you begin moving in a whole different track, a heavenly track, a walk in the spirit, not, set, not having our mindset set on the flesh, not looking for sin in the flesh, but the mindset on the spirit, which is life and peace, to see the new reality of who we are in Christ. It's not like man. This is, not, this is not of man. This is not religion. This is, not, this is from heaven. This is God's way. It's, it's like getting out of a boat and walking on water. It doesn't make sense. You mean I can get out of this boat and just look at you, Jesus, and the water that's going to kill me in this boat, we're about to drown. The flesh, the sin, the power of sin is going to kill me. But you're telling me I just have to step onto something I can't, I can't walk on if I just keep my eyes on you. And I'll find myself walking on the thing that's trying to kill me? Behold. Boom! (laughs) Behold the mystery of Christ. Behold God's way, see? Behold. That's God's way. Do you think Peter was uh, treading water with his toes? Was he he contributing a little bit to his buoyancy? (laughs) Or was he just looking? But what happened when he looked away from Jesus? He looked at the storm, and then immediately he thought, I can't do this. What am I doing out here? And he began to sink. And what happened? Jesus immediately, why did you doubt Peter? See, all that's instructive to teach us his way. We keep our eyes on him. He himself lives his own life through us. We don't look for sin anymore. Through the law was the knowledge of sin. That's what the law was all about. The law was given that sin might increase, that sin might be exceedingly sinful, that it might magnify sin. That's what it was all about. Grace is about magnifying Christ. It's about magnifying him and his awesome work so that we live in a whole new way, a new and living way, Hebrews says. Not the old dead way, but a new and living way. Full of hope. Full of hope. We, we, we We don't faint because we have received mercy, Paul says. We faint not. You can't faint with this gospel. You can't, you can't be weary with this gospel because you never, you, it's not up to you. It's awesome. I, I got weary in legalism. I burned out in legalism. I burned out looking for sin in the flesh, thinking, I, thinking it was in my heart. It wasn't in my heart. That's why you feel terrible when you sin as a believer because that's not who you are. It's not the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. That's a horrible word to use. The scripture doesn't use that word, convicting. That's like that's a, a sentence of judgment, a convict gets convicted, and you're not a convict. The Spirit of God, there's not a single verse in the entire New Testament that says the Holy Spirit convicts the believer of sin. There's only one verse that says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin because they believe not on Jesus. That's another false teaching in the church today. The Spirit of God doesn't convict you of sin. Horrible thinking, horrible word to use. That's a legal term, convict. No, the Holy Spirit is saddened. Grieve, sadden when we walk after the flesh because that's not who you are it's a bridegroom wooing his bride and saying I can meet that need I can meet that need come to me that's the that's the you got the yuckiness you feel with that I feel when I walk after the flesh it's because it's not who I am I'm not being true to myself I'm not being true to who I really am in him it's awesome and his love is there just like he was there for Peter why did you doubt come to me Come to me. Peter said one time, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. And the Lord says, don't be afraid, Peter. Only believe. Come. Come. So the third thing the church has got to get worldwide is that the dynamic of heaven is not to look at the flesh to become more Christ-like. This teaching that's out there in some churches that you're supposed to search out indwelling sin in in your life so you can deal with it, that is not the truth. Paul says, no good thing dwells in my flesh. Why should I look for it? Why should I even look that way? Look at the Spirit. Don't set your mind on the things of the flesh, but on the Spirit, the scripture says, the new man, the new creation, and watch us walk on water. It's, and, and you cannot explain it. No flesh can glory in His presence when you, when you walk in His way, because all you can say is, I don't know. Once I was blind, now I see. All I know, the Messiah is living in me. All I can, explain, I can, all I can say is that His life is, is greater, greater is He was in me than He was in the world. Isn't that awesome? So those three things we need to, the church worldwide needs to see that the sin has been taken away and not just covered. That our sin, that our heart is not sinful. We have a new heart. It was sinful. The Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully sinful, and who can know it? Absolutely. We were in our flesh. We were in the flesh, in sin, dead in our trespasses, the scripture says. With the old fallen nature. But God totally eradicated the fallen nature. Totally. We don't have two natures. We have a new nature. If you say you have two natures, and that means you have two daddies, two fathers, two origins, you do not. You are no longer from below. You are from above. You are no longer from Adam, but from Christ, the last Adam. So we do have the power of sin that works in our mortal body, but that's not your nature. That's not the old man rising up to fight you. No. Paul says, no, you're not. The old man's dead. It's gone. Because the moment you were severed, In your inner man, from your body of flesh, the old man ceased to exist by definition. The old man only exists if you're in the flesh. That's the old man. The moment you were separated from your body, the flesh, the old man ceased to exist by definition. There is no old man anymore, but there is a residual power that's been quarantined in the members of our body, the apostles taught. And that's what's not taught like it should be in the church, so we can understand this stuff, so we can understand the new creation, so we're not condemning ourselves all the time, and so we can grow and learn how to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Amen. Awesome. Okay, let's look at, I want I to share a few thoughts about number two, issue number two, this whole thing about spiritual circumcision. This is huge with God. This is so cool. This is the, the sign of the covenant. God said that the sign of the covenant would be circumcision for Abraham, when he called Abraham, and you know he count, he counted Abraham righteous by his simple faith in God, and then Abraham was circumcised afterwards. And Paul made a point of this to so to show us that he was made righteous before the circumcision, to show us that it's not the act of circumcision that does anything; it was just God's way of sealing this act of faith by Abraham. Circumcision, I, I think you can even look at the flood, the the world before the flood. There was like it was like a circumcision that took place. Because Genesis says in the very beginning, the world was covered by a canopy of clouds. The world had never seen rain before, Genesis said. It was like, what do you call those things that you have a, terrar- is a terrarium? Is it a terrarium? You seal it up and you can plant, so you don't have to water it because it, just, it makes its own water. That's why the whole world was like that. That's why we find fossils in Antarctica of, of foliage and green jungle leaves and, and fossils of, of uh, woolly mammoths in Antarctica. Why? Because the whole world was a, was a paradise. There was no, uh, there was no rain. It just, the, the scripture says in Genesis that the, a vapor came up from the earth and watered it and took care of all the plants and so forth. A vapor. So what happened was when God broke the canopy, the flooding came from above. It came from below. he broken up the depths of the water of the ocean. He, he did, it was totally awesome destruction. But in a sense, he circumcised the earth. He cut away the canopy that covered the earth as a picture of the death of Christ that was coming. He circumcised the entire earth and brought forth a new earth. A new earth through the ark, which is a picture of Christ also. I think that he he brought them through judgment to a new world, a new earth. He was painting the picture of this even before Abraham. So then here's Abraham. Now Abraham is circumcised. And and you realize, you you might have thought, well, why didn't he have something for the women? You know, only the men get to get in this covenant? Well, the reason why is because God saw the man and the woman married together as the the man's circumcision becoming the woman's circumcision in oneness. Abraham's circumcision became Sarah's circumcision in union, in oneness. Why? Because it was a picture of Christ in the church to come. We cannot die for our sins. We cannot be spiritually circumcised. So the circumcision of Christ, Colossians says, became our circumcision. His death becomes our death. So the bride of Christ, the church, receives. We're receivers. Like Clark says, be a good receiver. We're receivers. That's all we can do is receive. So the church receives. Christ gets circumcised. Christ dies on the cross, not me. So when Jesus died, the bridegroom, his circumcision becomes my circumcision in union. His death counts for my death. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You see how God thought all this out? Now, what does this, what does this say to me? Well, what, what, let, let me say this real quick. There's, there's the, um, this passage in Genesis where, Paul, where, um, where God says to Abraham, he says, he says, this is the covenant I have with you, Abraham, that if, that if you and every male get circumcised, they are in my covenant. If they do not get circumcised, they're not in my covenant. They have broken my covenant. So God's Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant is really all about Abraham believing, simple faith, and a circumcision. No moral laws to keep, no good deeds to do. But just, if, if you get circumcised, you're in the covenant. If you don't get circumcised, you're not in the covenant. What does that say? As a foreshadowing of the new covenant, it says that it's not about doing good deeds, it's about God doing something of which this circumcision is a picture of that we're gonna find out later. Isn't that awesome? I love that. I mean, that's, that was the condition of the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision or no circumcision. If, you, if you're circumcised, you're in the covenant. If you're not, you're out of the covenant. That's it. The law was a whole lot different. You had to keep all these laws and do all this stuff to stay in the covenant. Not Abrahamic covenant. Very simple, very precise because it had meaning behind that circumcision. Okay, so there's three views out there that have distorted the truth, in my opinion, of, the, of this awesome work of spiritual circumcision and new creation. First view talks about, well, let me say this. The Roman, the Roman Catholic view is, is, is it's one of the worst, I guess. You have grace, faith, works, and you have a lot of works added to the work of Christ. You have Hail Marys and Our Fathers, and you have Mass, and you have rituals. It's, it's, it's a problem. It's a huge, and that's why the Protestants went to battle over this, and they protested. The Protestants protested this, but the Protestants have their own problems. The Protestants have three views about this work of, of, work of Christ, and uh, in, in terms of sanctification or new creation, and the first view that you hear a lot is that, oh, no, no, sanctification is progressive. It's got to be progressive. Um, there's no way that we're sanctified immediately. It's, a, it's progressive. This is held by the Reformed theologians, the Calvinists, Baptist, Presbyterians. They don't see that you're sanctified yet. Oh, no, no, God's working on you, making you more and more holy. It's a process, et cetera, et cetera. Where they miss it is that they're, t- they're calling the, the manifestation of the sanctification that is there, a process. And it is. Let me say it again. The, the manifestation of a sanctification, a holiness that's already there, the manifestation, the growth, the growth, the fruit that comes forth, which definitely is a process, fruit and more fruit and more fruit, that is not what defines your holiness or your sanctification, it is because you are holy and because you are sanctified that you have fruit in the first place. So they're, they're confusing the, ma- the outward manifestation of a growth of fruit with the essence of the holiness itself. You see the point? It's like this. It's like if I uh, planted an orange tree and I put the seed in the ground, I planted the orange tree and I watched it and I watered it and let it grow and it starts to grow. And then I don't see oranges the first year so. Uh, it must not be an orange tree yet. And then, uh, you know, next year, uh, still no oranges. Must not be an orange tree yet. Third year, first little orange, little green orange comes up, and then it starts to turn orange. Now it is an orange tree. That's how they think. That's, that's the, how wrong that thinking is. And some people will say, well, it's not quite an orange tree yet. In our church, you've got to have 10 oranges. <laughs> you've got to have 10 our standard's a little bit higher, man. You've got to have 10 oranges and, uh, and not cut your hair. What's that? So, so it's all this stuff about outward manifestation. No, the orange tree was actually an orange in what? The seed, which is a picture of the finished work of Christ, all in the seed, only needing to be received. The seed has everything in it. The seed has the root structure, has the bark, has the leaves, has the orange, has the flowers, has the fragrance, has the color, all in one seed. Yeah. Boom! I love that. It is the finished work of Christ in a seed. It's like it's waiting to, to open up, just receive it. Jesus said, if, I, uh, if, if a seed if a seed abides alone, it bears no fruit. But if it falls into the ground it dies. It bears fruit. He was even referring to himself directly as the seed. And who made the seed? God made the seed. Jesus made the seed. All things were made by him and through him and for him to teach us the invisible things of God. So what it is, the seed is the finished work of Christ. But it has, it, it has no effect. Doesn't it, It's in vain for those who don't plant it in the ground. But when they plant it in the ground, guess what? The moment you plant the ground, it's, a, it's an orange tree. Even if you don't see it on the surface, it's a tree under the ground. It's a little thing break, breaking out. It's a little root structure going down. It's a seed. And then when it breaks forth the green, it's still an orange tree. Even though you don't see any fruit, it's still an orange tree. It's still an orange tree. You're still holy. You're still holy. You, you were sanctified the moment you believed and received. See? So this first view of a progressive sanctification is wrong. They're talking about this outward manifestation, the fruit. Yes, that's a process, but you are holy the moment you have been born of the Spirit. It has to be that way. God, as Clark says, God does not live in a dirty house. He cannot live in a dirty house. He cannot be joined to us unless we're perfectly clean and perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and blameless, and that's what he did. It's awesome. Another view of the Protestant church is this view that um, the Wesleyans had this view, the Methodists had this view, my grandfather had this view. Um, It's a view that says at some point in your Christian life, you surrender it all. You have this crisis with God, and you are sanctified. You, get, you reach the point of, uh, those of you who know the Wesleyan teaching know this, it's called being sanctified. There's, there's an experience with God where you lay everything on the altar, and you, you finally get sanctified. You finally get, there's a, I don't doubt the experience, they probably did have an awesome experience in the spirit, but we, we, we misinterpret experiences. Because we don't know the scriptures. So we say, oh, that must be, that's what sanctification is. I just got sanctified. And that began this huge doctrine among the Wesleyans that you, you reach a point of maturity and surrender and you have an experience with God and, and the Spirit come, overshadows you and you have this experience and, and oh, I've been sanctified. That's off. <laughs> but the reason they say that is because they see, see, they see in the scripture that the believer is sanctified. You can't deny it. The scripture says, Christ has been made into me wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. He's been made into me all these things. Paul says, you once were this, you once were that, but now you are justified. Now you are sanctified. Now you're all past tense. Hebrews says, for that the law could not sanctify anything, but now bringing in a better hope has, and now we who have believed on him have all been sanctified. Past tense, past tense, past tense. It's there. They can't deny it. So the Wesleyans come, out, come up with this thing uh, where the... The other group is like this progressive thing where one day, you know, you have this nebulous idea of one day you're sanctified enough. The Wesleyans think in terms of this crisis moment where you get sanctified because it's in the scripture and that's how they explain it. Without seeing that, you don't have to go there. You don't have to teach it like that. Just see that you're sanctified already and then live and enjoy that sanctification in growth, and we will have seasons of fillings of the Holy Spirit, anointings and movements of the Spirit. Just enjoy that and be refreshed by it and grow by that. But don't say, okay, now everything's now, or now I'm holy. No, see? A third view is sinless perfectionism, sinless perfectionism. There's a teaching out there that says that we can get to a place where we don't sin in our bodies anymore as believers on earth. And they say that, too, because in well, they're well-meaning because they see the Scripture actually says that. In 1 John, it says, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, says that the new creation, the believer, cannot sin. Cannot. For the seed of God abides within them. The new creation cannot sin. So, if you don't see spiritual circumcision, and you see this verse... You take it as a challenge to stop sinning so you can reach some kind of sinless perfectionism. We're not saying that either. That's also wrong. What is the the truth that we can get from Scripture that answers all three of these views? The new creation, it's true, the new creation cannot sin. It's impossible. If your new man could sin, then you would need another Redeemer, another Savior. The new man cannot sin. I love what Clark said last Sunday. If you weren't here, he said something so profound. He said, you know why God does not see your sin? Because it's not there. The new man has no history. The new creation has no history of sin. And will never sin. It's, that was an awesome statement. I've never heard that said. God cannot see your sin because it's not there. In the new man. And God does not recognize the flesh. He doesn't recognize Ishmael. He recognizes Isaac, the son of the promise. He doesn't recognize Ishmael. He said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, and offer him up to me. Your only son? What about Ishmael? I don't recognize the flesh. I'm not looking at the flesh. And if, and Paul says to us, Know no man after the flesh anymore, but after the spirit. If we're if we're not supposed to know each other after the flesh anymore, but after the spirit, how much more does the father not know us after the flesh? You see? This is awesome. I tell you, it's good news, good news, good news, good news, good news, good news, good news. There is no fine print in this covenant. Behold, I'll remember your sins no more. I'll be merciful to all your iniquities. This is wonderful. This is awesome. This is off the charts. This is joy. That's why the early church had a sense of awe about them. They couldn't believe this. They could, this, this can't be this good. And then, the, and then the life of God began to come forth in them, and they began to experience His love. Now, some people will hear this, this, this thought about how the, the power of sin has been quarantined in our physical body, which is all apostolic teaching. Search the scripture, saints, especially Romans. My gosh, Romans is full of Paul talking about sin in our body, a physical body, in our members. You know, God has has totally left this power of sin in our physical bodies, in our members. He even says, you know, in Romans 7, you know, he, he discovered this. He goes, wow, I discovered something else working in me that was bringing me into captivity all the time. He goes, Who's, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And it's all it's all in the apostolic writings about how this mystery of iniquity has been kept in this body. The body is dead because of sin, Paul says, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Paul says the outer man is decaying every day because of this sin, but the inner man is being renewed every day because of the spirit of life. It's very clear. It's this dichotomy of the outer and the inner, the visible and the invisible. Soul and spirit, one person, and the outer body. God has. That's why the flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God because it has sin in it. it must be given, you must be given a new body, an immortal body, to match that which is already inside of you. And so this whole idea of the power of sin in our mortal body, some people will say, that, that's, that smacks of Gnosticism. And some people don't even know what that is, but some people do. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that smacks of Gnosticism. And, and they won't even look into it. They won't even go any past the word, oh, that's Gnosticism. And won't, it's, my brother Robert said the other day, I thought it was so cool. He said, he said you know, we've got to be careful about these words that people throw around just to, to keep us from looking in, in, on this journey of discovery. For instance, the term antinomian, you know, we start talking about the law, how we're released from the law. We're dead to the law. The law was weak and useless. The law is the strength of sin. The law, you know, is, is, is not for the righteous. And whatever the law says, it says it to those who are under the law and we're not under the law. I mean, you go all the scriptures about the law, it's clear that we're done with it, right? Well, who came up with the term antinomian? My brother Robert said, you know, he did some research on where it first started to be. The guys that came up with the term antinomian were the legalists. The Puritans and others who, who said, oh, that's antinomian to not have the law be the rule of life for a believer and, and the law being a very big part of the believer's life. Well, so you can be preaching the gospel about freedom from law and being under grace, and that term will be thrown at you like, oh, you're antinomian. And then we didn't realize, we don't realize that, hey, that's the legalist. legalists came up with that term. So obviously they're going to say that because that's... What they believe. So anyway, just be careful about this term Gnosticism as, being, as deterring you from your study and your research. Because what the Gnostics believed was this. The Gnostics believed that the body was evil. They believed that the body was evil. They believed that matter was evil. Which is why in 1 John 4, 1 through 6, 1 John, 4, 1 through 6 John addresses that and he says, If you don't believe Jesus came in the flesh, then you are of the spirit of Antichrist. See, the Gnostics said he didn't really come in the flesh. Jesus really didn't come in a body. He was like a phantom. He appeared to be a man, but he really wasn't a man because it messed up their doctrine. Their whole doctrine was that matter is evil and spiritual spirit is good. And so they separated the two. They made the body evil. So what we're saying, what the apostles are saying, is not that the body is evil. The body's not evil. The body's a good thing. The scripture says, thou hast prepared for me a body, Jesus said. That he may offer it up. We, our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the body's not evil. But there is the power of sin that works within the body. That's a difference. There's a, there's a, there's a virus-like thing, a virus. The body itself is good. It's God's idea. It's God's creation. The sun had a body. But it's, the, it's like a virus within the flesh, in the body itself. Which is why Paul says don't walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. It's all tied to this power that works through our body. Mortal body. That's how Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit will put to death the deeds of the body. See? Okay, so you hear someone say that's Gnosticism. It's not. It's not Gnosticism. And, and you know what's interesting, saints? Have you ever heard, do you hear much about the heresy of Gnosticism these days? Not much. You know why? Because we're not preaching the truth. So that heresy, there's no occasion for that heresy to come up. You can trace the truth of what the church taught through early heresies. You can take early heresies and trace it back and see, oh, they did teach that the power of sin was in the body. That's how the Gnostics warped that and came to this heresy. We don't have the heresy of Gnosticism today because nobody's preaching that there's power of sin in the body. Nobody. Nobody even in, no, nobody's even talking about that. They're talking about the power of sin in your heart, your evil heart as a believer. And so, see, Gnosticism never comes up because... We're not preaching the truth. If we start preaching the truth of the first century church, we'll have the first century heresies. But don't let that deter you from the truth. So anyway, so then just to wrap this up, you know, going back to those three views of the Protestant church, you know, the, the growth in sanctification or the one-time event of sanctification or the sinless perfection thinking, At the root of all that thinking is is um, an approach to the work of Christ that goes something like this. It is that there there are two things um, that a believer needs to understand. And that is our standing before God and our state before God. Most theologians talk about standing and state. The standing, they'll say, oh yeah, yeah you're, you're positionally righteous, you're standing before God is righteous and holy, you're, yeah, you're positionally, you're standing, is, you've got it, you're there. you know." Because they can't deny it, the scripture's very clear. But your state is a whole different matter. you either progressively getting more holy, or you have this crisis event, like in the Wesleyans, the Wesleyans teach that you become holy. Or you get to a place where you're walking in sinless perfection, but your state is all, all different from your standing. The truth is, Paul never separated standing and state. They are one. Like Clark says, it's a state of being. It's an act of creation. Our state is holy, is righteous, not just a standing. The saints before Christ had only standing They did not have a state of righteousness, only standing. They were reckoned righteous by their faith, but they descended to Sheol because they were not yet born again, regenerated, and there was no new creation for the Spirit of God could not bring forth a new creation until Jesus was glorified, the Scripture says. There was no regeneration, no born again, nothing until Christ came, which is why circumcision was the sign of the covenant before Christ, and after Christ, there's no more circumcision or uncircumcision but a new creation. You see that? There's no circumcision in the flesh now in the new creation because the real has come. The, the real deal has come of which circumcision was a picture. So they had righteousness reckoned to them. Their standing and state were different. That's why they descended and they didn't go to heaven. But now, when you die, you go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. You are in his presence now. Yes. Yes. Seated with him in places. You just put off this body and you step over into that other dimension fully. But in the spirit, we are there now, walking with him, as he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, don't you know that the Son of Man is in heaven as he walks the earth? What if I ascend in front of your eyes? You know, it's like he freaked Nicodemus out. Because that's who we are. We are seated with him in heavy places in union with him because we are a new creation. Our state and our standing are one. That's what that's why this is so awesome. This work of Christ is so awesome. It's so much better that Hebrews says that they would not be perfect without us. They did not have what you and I have. They saw it afar off, but they did not have what you have now. You now sit in this room, every single believer sits in this room circumcised by the hand of God. The scripture says, a circumcision made without the hands of men. The body of flesh has been cut away and the Holy Spirit has joined himself to your inner man. You literally have been translated into the kingdom of the beloved son. You sit in these chairs, sons and daughters and heirs of God himself it's awesome you have the real sign of the covenant which is the circumcision of Christ in that his death has become your death and and his life has become my life and I'm in union with him the real has come I wrote a few things I didn't want to miss a couple of things real quick just to wrap it up oh yeah let me just say this real quick well, what's what's the essence of this power of sin, in the flesh? This really helped me understand it better. The scripture says, "Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord." There's nothing, as Clark says, there's nothing God has to do to make you and I fit for heaven. It's done. An act of creation has taken place. So, the moment you die and leave your body, you go into the presence of God. The moment you die, you're in the presence of God, because He has made you holy, blameless. Jude says He's able to present you in His presence with Joy unspeakable, blameless, with exceeding joy. The moment you put off this body because of the work of Christ, you go immediately in the presence of God without fear because you are as he is. In fact, you are as he is now on the earth. John says, as he is, so are you in this world now. Awesome. Okay, so, so the, the uh, what, was my, what was I thinking about? Oh, yeah. So the new man is actually already holy and blameless and perfect. Okay, so why do we sin sometimes? Why do we still sin and go after the flesh? The power of sin, I believe the power of sin, this power that's in our body, in our flesh, in our members, it's not another nature. It is an an influence, if you want to say it that way. And keep in mind this, saints. We can understand, I believe we can understand and articulate these mysteries to a point. We can understand and articulate these mysteries to a point, but I will never be able, this side of heaven, explain or understand the depths of this mystery. But God has given us enough in in the apostolic writings, enough for us to believe. Enough where the Holy Spirit can take and give us a kind of heavenly logic about it all, where we kind of get it and we can believe. But don't ever feel like you have to explain the mystery of God. The scripture says, we shall know all things as we are known when we leave this body. But now we see in part, we prophesy in part, because we work through these brains. There's just no way we can really see. It's like, it's beyond the human brain to even grasp. Paul had an experience out of the body. He says, I was, he, he referred to it as some other man, but it was probably Paul. He says, I couldn't tell if I was in the body or out of the body. But God took him out of the body So he could see all of this clearly. And you know what he said? He said, I saw everything, and I can't even articulate what I saw. Some translation says, I saw things that are not lawful to be uttered. That's not the Greek. The Greek is not lawful to be uttered. It's not, it's not nothing unlawful about uttering what he saw. The actual Greek is, I can't put words to what I saw. Isn't that awesome? Don't you want to live the rest of your life believing that what he did is as wonderful as he says it is? When the Son of Man returns to earth, shall he find faith on the earth? Shall he find someone who believes? This wonderful counselor. I love this. I love this. God is awesome. God is awesome. It's genius. The whole thing is genius. And no flesh can glory in his presence. It's all him living his own life through us. Okay, let me get back to that point. All right, the flesh, the flesh, what is the essence of this thing that moves us away from being who we are in Christ? I believe it's this. Paul says when the law came, sin deceived him. Sin deceived him. And then death came, condemnation and death. The law, thou shalt not covet. Remember Romans 7? He said, when the law came, sin in him, sin deceived him. Sin, this power was was telling him something. The power of sin lied to him about something. And it goes back to the garden. The enemy lied to Adam and Eve and imparted this lie, this way of thinking, this bent, bent way of thinking in the flesh, in the natural man. What is the bent way of thinking? The enemy said in the very beginning what he said himself to God. He said himself to God, I will ascend above the Most High. I will be like him. I will. Five times Satan said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will do it. He then took that lie that he could be like God without God and said to Adam and Eve, if you just eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you just learn the rules, if you just learn what's good and evil, what's right and wrong, you can be like God without God. You don't need him. You can be like him. If you just have this piece of information, all you need to know is what he knows. That's the lie of the garden that he said to Adam and Eve, you can be like God without God. And it's a lie. Because only God can be God. And he made us with a spirit so he could live his own life through us. So what is the essence of this power of sin that works even in the believer's life, which is in the flesh, but not in your real life, not in who you are, but still in the flesh? What is the essence of this lie? It is at its core, it is at its core this attitude of independence. It is at its core a thinking that says, I really don't need God. And the world is full of it. It manifests in unlove. Unlove, the works of the flesh. If you look at the list of the works of the flesh, it's all unlove. Jealousy, strife, envy, whatever, it's all unlove. It manifests, the flesh manifests, the works of the flesh manifests in this bent, self-centered, selfish way, but the core, the root of the deception that is in the flesh is I don't need God. I can do this. Now, look at this. This is so cool. The divine nature that you you and I now have At your core, the core of your being, you have the divine nature of the Christ. Jesus said just the opposite. He said, Apart from my Father, I can do nothing. Nothing. He said, As I live by my Father, you're gonna live by me. You see? The essence of the divine nature is a a life of complete dependency. The new creation is wired that way. We are branches on a vine. We do not have life in ourselves. Our life is in him. So your heart, your very heart desires to live in dependency on your papa. That's who you are. And the flesh will lie to you about things and say, You don't need God for this. And we find ourselves walking in unlove. But if we see ourselves, No, no, I need God for everything. And you know what I think a good barometer of, of whether we're walking in dependency on God or not as a, as, a, as a believer? Because, you know, Paul says an amazing statement. He says, Walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. What? That's easy? That easy? Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That tells me volumes. It's not a matter of, of, uh, of uh, reparative therapy or uh, developmental psychology. Things that people didn't know for the last 2,000 years. No, it's not a matter of that. It's walking the Spirit it won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. What is, why is that? Because the Spirit is a different reality. And the flesh is not who you are. So, so what happens when... Um, I lost my thought. We were talking about the, the power of sin that... Bends us toward the the, the unlove. Just thoughts of thought there. Well, anyway, I was just trying to. Maybe it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the thought is this that we are. Oh, I know, I know the barometer, the barometer. <laughs> a good barometer. A good barometer. See, you work through these weak earthly vessels. (laughs) Um, The barometer, I think a good barometer, not a rule to keep, but a barometer to see if we're walking in dependence on the spirit of Christ in our lives as believers is um, do I thank him a lot? Am I thankful? Because when you're walking in dependence on God, you're saying thank you a lot. Have you noticed that? When you're really depending on God, like say, you go, sometimes we only depend on him when we're in a crisis. And when you're in a crisis, you're like, oh, thank God, oh, thank you, God, thank you. Oh, thank you, God, oh, God, thanks. Oh, God, thanks. Oh. And then when the crisis is going, it's like, I got this. Yeah. No, we need him for everything. Right. Every breath we take, Amen. we thank. And so when, you are thank, when you're thankful a lot and you say, thanks, God, thanks, thanks. Thanks, Lord, give me wisdom as I do, I have this business meeting, give me wisdom to speak and to see and understand. And, and then after the meeting, you go, God, thank you so much. That was such a good meeting. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me get this airline ticket. I've got to be there. Help me. Uh, who do I call? Oh, God. Oh, ah, it worked out. Thank you. Oh, thank you, God. That worked out. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for helping me. Thank you, God. Thank you. See, it's, it's, a, it's a place of dependency and, and, and the divine nature's in action, man. That's the divine nature, depending. It's in the flesh, is like not in the picture. And you're walking in love. You find yourself walking in love and all this stuff because the, the life of God is just flowing. Another good barometer, I think, is, is if we are, um, uh, what's the word? Oh, it's the, the other thing I was thinking about, being thankful. In a oh, I slipped my mind on that one too. Gosh, I'm getting old. Um, there was another thought I had, a, a good a barometer that I use for my own life to see if I'm really walking in this place of dependency. I think it has to do with just... Prayer. Yes, that's it. <laughs> I said it in the class this morning, sorry. Dale, thanks. Prayer, that's it. Prayer. You pray without ceasing. You do a lot of praying. And I don't mean this for, you know, get up at four in the morning and pray for four hours. I'm talking about all during the day. You pray without ceasing. You're, you're just, there's this constant communication like, like, Lord, what do you think about this? Or, what do you think about this verse? Or, Lord, help me, help me do this. Or, what do you think about this? See, my dad lived in an in a era. My dad would, has, had the mentality that you don't bother God about the little things. You take care of the things. You, know, you, only, you only bother God about the big things. I think some people in the older generation had that mentality that you don't bother God about you know, little things. He's too busy. You know, you got to, yeah, big things, yeah, go to God. But, you know, we're, we're men. And we, we take care of things ourselves. And a lot of people have that mentality. God doesn't want that. God, the scripture says, God takes no pleasure in the, a man who can no, it says God takes no pleasure in the, in the legs of a man. The strength of a man is in his legs. He got, says, God takes no pleasure in the strength of man. God takes no pleasure in a man who can pull himself up by his bootstraps. God's not interested. He's not interested in a man who can pull himself up by his bootstraps and be a man. No. God is willing to take God is more excited about a David who says, "I can't do this, but my God can." And I'm going in the name of the Lord and the strength of the Lord, you know, that kind of thing. That's, God is into someone who will depend on him. The scripture says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to find one that will depend on him. And so that's, that's the, that praying, that being thankful is a barometer of our depending on him and letting the spirit just live his own life through us and let Christ live his own life through us. Okay, in closing, let me say this. This is so cool. Jesus ate. Jesus ate food that they were not aware of, he said. He said, "I have food to eat that you know not of." Jesus said that my meat and my drink is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He said, "My meat it's like a steak dinner to me to do his will. That's the divine nature talking. That's what's in you. He said, "My meat and my drink is to do His will and to finish the work he has sent me to do. It's nourishment to me. Now, we cannot eat that food. We cannot eat. You cannot go directly to that meal and eat. Jesus had no sin, and he could eat that meal. We cannot. So what do we eat? We eat of Christ. We eat the the bread and drink the blood of Christ. We focus on him. We eat of him. He is our bread. He is our meat. He is our drink. And what happens, saints, is that Christ himself begins to live his own life in us. And we'll find ourselves doing, but it will be him doing, and we'll find a deep nourishment a deep satisfaction, but it won't be us. No flesh can glory in his presence because all we're doing is eating of his bread, eating of his body, drinking of his blood, remembering the finished work, remembering that we're in union with him, remember that we're forgiven, remember that we're righteous in him, remember the, the awesome thing he has done. I'm focusing on Jesus. I'm not focusing on doing. I'm focusing on him, on what he did for me, and I find myself doing, but it's really him doing and not I. Isn't that awesome? And then we will show a pattern of good works in all that we do to put to silence foolish men who say this grace is a license to sin. Paul says, put a, Paul says show a pattern of good works in all that you do as Christ himself lives through you in this love, in this awesome love. And you'll put to silence foolish men who say this grace will lead to ruin. See, Paul had the same detractors and same criticism. That's why he made that statement. Put to silence these foolish men. Let Christ so live in you to put to silence these foolish men that think God's way is not the right way. God's wisdom is higher than man's wisdom. And God has chosen the foolish things to confound the the wise and the weak things to confound the strong. I want to be on God's side. (laughs) I want to walk in his way. I want to walk on water his way and not come up with some idea for some canoe or something. I want to walk I want to do it God's way and it'll be it'll be miraculous and it'll be no flesh and glory in his presence. In closing, I love that verse in Galatians where it says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision chapter 6 of Galatians neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything. Now, because that was just a picture. But what availeth now? is a new creation. Mercy and peace be upon those who believe this, he said, the true Israel of God. Awesome! Let's stand. Lord, we just thank you that you've opened our eyes to your ways, your ways are past finding out. They must be revealed. Lord, I pray that we would grow as a body in love toward each other more and more. And remembering that every single person here is fighting some battle, some kind of battle, whether it's financial or physical or spiritual or relational. Everybody's fighting a battle. We live in a fallen world and you said in this world you, sh- you shall certainly have tribulation but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And you've given us each other brothers and sisters to encourage each other to speak the truth of the new creation to each other to know each other no more after the flesh but after the spirit that we might all grow up into the maturity of Christ and love one another. Lord, thank you for this your soundness, soundness. You're a God of a certain sound. You're not confusing. You don't contradict yourself. It's so clear. Thank you, Father, for this awesome reality. What a covenant. What a covenant. What a God. I pray that my brothers and sisters today will leave here with a strange warmness in their bosom. Knowing that Christ is, is for them and not against them. That you've done it all. And you say, come away, my beloved. Come away, I see no spot in you. Come, my fair one. Run with me. Behold. Behold. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Come to me. Call to me. And I will answer you. And I will show you great and mighty things that you know not. I love you with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, I have drawn you to myself. So, on the way out, and uh, please give before you go, one final thing. Uh, The Apostle Paul.